do think to look back on it now, it's a really interesting question. I do feel like I really enjoy the space of listening and that space of listening and responding in a way that's hopefully connected to a listening partner and an attuned partner. Some of my favorite acting scenes are really when we're both listening to one another uh, in a really present, non-judgmental, supportive space. And I, I think that there are tenants within that that have such connection to, to working in medicine, particularly in palliative care. Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kefauver here. In case you're new to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch podcast, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. It's a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in all of our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet, individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing us all a lot of harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief, one conversation at a time. I'm glad you're joining me. Today's episode is brought to you by Vita Health. Did you know that nearly half of Americans have more than one chronic health condition? From depression to diabetes to stress, Vita Health is the only virtual care solution designed to treat the wide range of conditions that drive up healthcare costs and drive down quality of life. Vita offers personalized ways for people to actively engage in coaching to improve their own health. Vita providers use proven behavior change techniques to deliver clinically validated results for both mental and physical health. Find out why more organizations are choosing Vita for their employees and their members. Visit Vita.com to learn more. That's V-I-D-A.com. Vita, healthcare designed for the body and mind. My friends, what can I say about today's guest? The minute Rachel and I were introduced last year, we fell into deep and ongoing discussions about the importance of narrative and storytelling in healing spaces. Rachel Rush is a social worker, educator, and researcher specializing in pediatric palliative care in Los Angeles. Her work centers on the intersection of narrative and storytelling in healthcare and the relationship between patient, family, and clinician perseverance. We explore all of these subjects in today's episode, including her personal experiences of loss and the insights she's gleaned from some of the incredible narrative medicine and improv projects she's involved in today. Rachel Rush, thank you so much for joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch podcast today. I've been looking forward to this on-air conversation for a very long time. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here in this space with you. Yeah. So as you all already heard, Rachel is a pediatric palliative social worker. She's also intimately invested in the power of narrative and storytelling as a healing modality. So people who've listened to the show before will not be surprised that we are going to nerd out on all things narrative and metaphor and storytelling when it comes to the experiences of grief and even chronic illness or just medical wellness. We're, of course, going to dive into some personal and professional 
but I know for sure that I'm going to walk away having learned something. And I know you, the listeners, are absolutely going to be learning things too. In fact, you might want to get out your notebook for sure. So Rachel, I want to start, of course, and you'll appreciate this maybe more than most guests. I want to start asking, what is your earliest memory of grief? And what grief beliefs really do you think you learned through the explicit and implicit messages that the adults in your world were modeling? Thank you so much, Lisa. I have to start by saying that when I first heard your podcast for the very first time, and each time since, this question has really incorporated itself into my own personal reflection and practice. I've now brought it into spaces that are clinical with people and thinking about grief. What is your first memory of grief? What did you learn or not learn? What was modeled for you or not modeled for you during that time? So just a note of appreciation that that's how you ground and root these conversations, I think. There's something truly powerful in it. And it has left me thinking so much about my earliest experiences. The one experience that really comes to mind most profoundly is more of kind of an image uh, that I remember so vividly from being a child. My paternal grandparents lived in Tennessee. They had this beautiful little house that they had helped to build with their own two hands. And uh, there was one hallway that was between the living room and where their bedroom and some other uh, guest spaces were. And down this hallway were six pictures, big, you know, maybe two foot tall, beautifully adorned and framed photos um, of babies, of baby photos. And around five of the six of them were additional photos of childhood and of adolescence and of, of marriages, except for one that was just the photo of, of a young baby. And I remember growing up, whenever we would go pay them a visit, seeing this hallway of photos. I remember as I got a little older, I started to notice that one of them was my dad. One of them was my father. And I started to notice that others were my aunts and uncles. And I remember being probably about six or seven when I realized my dad is one of five children. And there are six pictures here. And there is that one photo that's just a baby photo and not surrounded with other pictures of life and of childhood and of growing up. And then I remember that uh, turning into a conversation with my parents and my father sharing with me that he had had a sister who died when she was only a few months old. Her death now would probably be described as under the umbrella of sudden infant death syndrome. There was no known underlying diagnosis. And I feel like that image of seeing those photos down the hallway and that one photo being both honored and a place of sort of present grief was very striking to me. I definitely had conversations with my father and uh, his siblings over the year about her. Her name was Shirley about how my older sister looked like her uh, as a baby, about how I think that made my grandmother and my older sister have a particular connection to one another. And I think that is an example of really beautiful groundwork that I'm so grateful of within my family, that for losses like that, and then losses that we faced as a family uh, when I was a child, there was space for that to be discussed and talked about. Um, I remember my parents always allowing me to ask the question that was on my mind and on my heart and respond to it. 
for some form of magic, I remember not feeling overwhelmed. I remember feeling very kind of met where I was uh, to put my now social work hat on. And I remember feeling really safe and asking those questions. So when I would see Shirley's photo, it felt like a place of reverence as opposed to a place of, of any kind of fear or any kind of unknown. What a beautiful image and story, which we're going to talk about later, you just told both in the imagery, which I think is always so powerful, especially as young children. I think that is how we capture it, you know, embodied movement and imagery more than words. So I love that you can even remember like just the fact that they had Shirley's image up there and they didn't try to erase Shirley in that is one thing, even just in the imagery without an adult saying anything. And then the fact that you had these experiences with your parents, it sounds like, and even your grandmother of invoking Shirley's memory, of being okay and affirmed in your curiosity and asking questions, which as you just pointed to, meant less of this fear of unknown and more of a sense of reverence and practice of carrying people's memories forward. Mm -hmm. Really remarkable. I feel very grateful for it. Yeah. Not somehow then surprising given the career you went into, although I think a lot of us end up going into this career because we didn't experience holding space and bearing witness, and we didn't experience those honest conversations too. So I think both can be our roots, but I appreciate you helping us even really visualize what you learned through that. Do you think in some ways you learned as much of the just having her image and her presence there as you did the actual dialogue that you had with family? Like, was that a piece of it that was important too, not just the words they said? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. Yeah, I think there was some kind of modeling that was taking place and having that hallway include her and include her at the same scale and with the same feeling as her other siblings. And yes, I think that there were things taught to me by walking down that hallway through up until my teenage years when they moved out of that home that I could then process for myself over time too and, and wonder for myself kind of anew in each season of my own life too. Yeah, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Well, I want to begin to draw the narrative of how you went from, you know, a young person having that experience in your home to ending up eventually being a pediatric palliative social worker. But the path was not straightforward as, hello, never <laughs> is, but took such an interesting and meaningful path. And I just would like pause to say to anybody who's thinking about getting into helping professions or wondering if it's too late, I think we always find our way to kind of our inner true calling. And whatever experiences we have career-wise, I think can always serve us. I did other work for a decade before I really found my home in social work. But there's nothing that happened in that intervening decade that doesn't serve how I showed up into the work that I did. So yes, now you're a pediatric palliative social worker. But for those folks who are listening who don't know you, you also used to be a performer in New York City, <laughs> right? So tell us a little bit about what that work was and if there were any seeds back then as you were breaking into the performing world and being a performer and an artist that you might have predicted would lead to this next career. But tell us, start there, kind of tell us a little bit about that time as an artist and performer? Sure. So I really appreciate how you've lifted up the idea of a past being ever connected, even if the hats that we wear or the roles that we take might shift along the way. 
for myself, don't necessarily think of pediatric palliative care social work as a second career or as right. A, a right turn necessarily. It all really feels more and more, more evolutionary. Yes, yeah. and and uh, like growth and building over time. My past, I have a BFA in acting from Boston University. My that's my <laughs> undergrad alma mater. <laughs> Go Terriers. Go Terriers. <laughs> Okay, sorry, y'all. Okay. Uh, uh, we can nerd out about West Campus Dining Hall another day. Yeah, and that is still a big part of my world. My husband is a playwright. My dearest friends are performers and actors and dancers and creators. And I, you know, I was a person who growing up really always loved that act of creation. And I think some of my other earliest memories are of stringing up a jump rope in my childhood closet and putting a blanket over top and doing puppet shows for, you know, and parents who have a lot other things to do than pay attention to my puppet shows every day. But I loved that part of storytelling and theater and that community around theater was really a big part of my life from adolescence onward. And the more that I have a space to reflect on it now, the more I see incredible overlap in the world of the humanities and of the performing arts and the potential within medical culture and in medical systems. I feel like my training was a lot about listening, a lot about being present, a lot about remembering to breathe, a lot about uh, uh, noticing yourself and what's arising for you in relationship to another person. And those are lessons that I'm so grateful for in this role now. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was always this performative or this creation drive for you. But also, as you said, there was something that you were drawn to in the sort of listening, understanding your own energy in a space, mirroring, reflecting, co-creating, sounds like. Was there some particular aspects of performance or types of performance that you really felt was like, what kinds of performing did you do and where did you, was it sort of traditional plays? Was it improv? Tell us a little bit about how you made your way through that and then maybe begin to tell us how the switch, well, it's not a switch that flipped because it was an evolution, but how you went from that place to the next. But yeah, tell us a little bit about the kind of performance that really spoke to you. Sure. So I had the great fortune of receiving particular training in improv and clowning and that in relationship to classical work, things like traditional Shakespeare and kind of old school clowning work, which is really about character building and about presence and about a lot of heart-centered themes. And as I continued to grow in my performing career, I really started to become a part of communities that were about creating original work and utilizing themes of improv and themes of building a show in a collaborative space those began to be the projects that I was really interested in, even as I got other kind of commercial successes or other sorts of um, shinier successes in certain ways. Those plays, one of the last plays I did when I was in graduate school for social work was a play that had been created over the course of four years with a group of people and lots of improv work, lots of coming up with scenes and ideas together. And the result was a really beautiful piece. So I think that those shows and those spaces had themes within them uh, in terms of partnership, in terms of saying yes and, you know, I, I'm sure we could talk about these improv oh, things we're to come, but definitely going to uh, do that. Yeah. These, these spaces in between that are directly correlate to my work now. And the most fun spaces for me as a performer to inhabit when I was primarily doing that work. Yeah. 
Well, I appreciate you helping us start to see kind of, again, those early seeds and recognizing even if you couldn't have named it back then, but the things that you were drawn to as a human, as a performer, as a creator, were the collaborative endeavors. And I mean, now you're working in integrated spaces, of course, in your work now. So that seems to make sense. Do you think when you look back, were you inherently a listener? Were you an inherently a yes and person? Did that feel like a stretch for you or like a coming home for you? Or maybe a little bit of both. Of course, it doesn't have to, it can be yes and is your answer <laughs> to that. Yes, and I think, yes, both. I think some of the really special, most precious parts of theater work and of the arts are really that communal space within a group of people. There were shows that I would do where you really only spend about eight to 10 weeks with a group of people, and yet they are my lifelong friends. What's happening in that space to make that happen between groups of people? I do think, to look back on it now, it's a really interesting question. I do feel like I really enjoy the space of listening and that space of listening and responding in a way that's hopefully connected to a listening partner and an attuned partner. Some of my favorite acting scenes are really when we're both listening to one another uh, in a really present, non-judgmental, supportive space. And I, I think that there are tenants within that that have such connection to, to working in medicine, particularly in palliative care. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to get into that notion. I saw you write one place, you know, palliative care is storytelling and storytelling is palliative care. So we will get into that in a little bit. I also just want to say what you just said about that attunement as we listen and respond in ways that are connecting and validating. Not only is that of service in palliative and medicine, but boy, couldn't our world use a whole lot more of that. And though we may not be politicians or, you know, affecting policy, we can all show up in our spheres of influence and practice that. And that just really seems to me that that is one way we might be able to shift these divides a little bit more. But anyway, that could be a whole another topic for another show. Sorry, but couldn't help myself. But you're moving through this time. You've moved then from, you know, you said you even kept acting as you made the switch and decision. I think I'm meant to be a social worker too. So you're in graduate school doing that. When you went into graduate school, was palliative care specifically or pediatric palliative care on your mind? Or just, I know I want to be a social worker and I'm going to see what comes. Yes, it, it kind of, the answer to that kind of connects to that beautiful reflection that you just had about not only allowing that listening and attuned space between one another, but how do we also offer that to ourselves if we have the, the privilege and safety and ability to do that within our own lives? How do we offer that to ourselves and offer that to others. And I think that that's what happened with regard to my kind of career shifting over time. Since I was uh, an older adolescent, young adult, I have been, I've had the great fortune of volunteering in spaces with children and families who have been facing serious illness based on other things within my own past and my family's history, which could be a podcast for another day too. I have had the fortune of being in those spaces, whether it's serious fun camps or uh, different creative arts workshops. Uh, and that really came to a coalescence when I was living in New York and making my living as a performer. I started volunteering with an organization called the 52nd Street Project. I lift them up here because I think that it could probably also be of great interest to a lot of your listeners. 
and they're a group they've been around for I think over 35 years now. Um, they work in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of Manhattan, partnering with youth in that neighborhood uh, in a variety of ways, lots of which are based in the arts and humanities. So for example, one of their first programs that you can take part of as a 9 and 10 year old is called Playmaking. And they utilize theater volunteers, people working in the arts in New York, and they partner them together with the kiddo. The kiddo will write a play, take like a playwriting workshop and meet with their partner and their group over time. And then when it comes to performing, the whole community is invited and they have this beautiful theater that seats, I think, well over 200 people and it's always packed to the brim. It's free to come. It's free to join. Um, And that kiddo will sit on the stage at a little playwright's desk while their play is performed by professional actors in New York. And I promise the story has a point. The reason that I bring it up is uh, twofold. One, because I feel like that was a space that for me really coalesced the idea of personhood and of partnering together with young people and uh, the idea of the power of the arts and humanities to see these kids on stage as even, you know, really well-known actors were doing their plays on stage was what a powerful space to lift up their voices. I was also partnered together there with a young person who herself was moving through serious illness and learned a lot through our relationship together. And as I moved through that space and that time, again, it really didn't feel like I was shifting to a new path. It felt like, oh, these skills of listening and of presence or the the teachings that are housed within truly communal spaces, how do I use that in a different way? You know, I I feel like I want to be of use in a different way. And I thought about a lot of different career paths. I thought about nursing. I thought about child life. I thought about medical school. And I found a dual degree program where I could graduate with both a master's degree in social work and a master's degree in child development. And that felt like a coalescing of of worlds. And that's what I decided to pursue. So yes, I feel like I entered with the hope of being able to work with kids with serious illness. And I think it's directly connected to working with young people and having them sort of teach me and teach us along the way too. Yeah. Using the power of narrative and storytelling and, and personhood, whether you're facing serious illness or death or even in, in grief spaces, which we'll of course talk a little bit about. So I'm not sure of the timeline, you know, you and I've gotten to know each other and I've done some reading offline but I know you ended up working as a pediatric palliative social worker at UCLA Children's Hospital. Is that correct? It's uh, uh, just Children's Hospital Los just, Angeles. Just hospitals. Children's Hospital Los Angeles. We're Sorry about that. USC. No. <laughs> Sorry, USC and UCLA. I didn't mean to confuse you. I feel mm-hmm. like I just touched on a rivalry no, there. I don't no, know anything about Okay. <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit about this incredible... I just am thinking through the timeline of asking you these questions. You have this profound project that you got awarded, it sounds like, to really take storytelling or the power of story. um, And it's called the Perseverance Project, uh, Transforming Resilience Through the Power of Story. And I want you to take us through a little bit, because when I think about this audience, my listeners have experienced grief and loss in all kinds of spaces and ways from chronic illness and injury, death, loss, immigration, divorce, I mean, the spectrum all of those things. So I want to hear a little bit. I know they'll be interested to think about the power of story, that word resilience in there, which I want you to help us unpack because I think it's got some charged language to it. 
Did that come first before you experienced your own personal loss? Was that kind of pre-pandemic? Tell us a little, just the timing before I think through of how we... Sure. Um, Maybe how did that project come to be and when did that project come to be? That project was definitely an evolution over time like so many things in my life have been and really grew out of partnership and conversation with people that I've had the great fortune to work with. And I think grew out of the entirety of of my history and my family's history and my community's history of uh, various assets of our aspects of um, loss and grief and, and growth and community. When we come back, Rachel unpacks the project she's leading that uses narrative medicine and improv theater to create three hour-long workshops with various themes directed at medical providers. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with my guest, Rachel Rush. Hey, don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. If you want some behind-the-scenes news, the latest on my work with companies, the scoop on the book I'm writing, same name as the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and so much more, visit lisakeefoffer.com. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. And sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter. Why not-so-regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. The project itself has two arms to it. One is the idea they all are under within the umbrella of utilizing storytelling and narrative to lift up the stories of our patients and to nurture our abilities to listen. Uh, So there are two arms, one that's more patient and family and caregiver facing, where we're working to create co-creative narratives with patients about their story and who they are as people outside of the medical picture of things. And then another arm of the project that really utilizes my background in arts and humanities and and improv and partnered with particularly two colleagues of mine who have like-minded interests to create a different way of, of teaching how we listen and teaching how we are inhabiting vulnerable spaces with one another. Um, So we utilize tenets of narrative medicine and improv theater to create uh, what we're doing right now, which are three hour long workshops with various themes. Directed at providers. So social workers, doctors, nurses, the people who are going to be interacting with families experiencing illness and grief and loss. Yeah. So we intentionally are creating these, what we're calling right now, narrative improv workshops to be truly interprofessional in nature. So even, you know, project coordinators, people who are working behind the scenes on different projects, because we, especially in institutions, are must uphold the voices of all the different people that we work with, clinicians and non-clinicians alike, in order to really shift a lot of needles within healthcare. I love that so much. I'm not sure I'm a little divided because I'm not sure I want where I want to dig in. First, I think listeners who've listened to the show before know that I'm always, of course, because I have my own training in narrative therapy and narrative approaches. I had the good fortune of going to graduate school and with a program that focused on that as a modality. So it's informed how I see the world and and how I show up in the world. So I love this notion that you're taking that skill set and that way of seeing the world and not just directing it at the patients and the families, but sort of going upstream, if you will to the providers so that they are embodying a different way of showing up and bearing witness, which can alleviate and prevent 
the some what I call sometimes the unnecessary harm and suffering of systems, which we've all, many of us have experienced, I certainly have in medical systems and other systems, by the way. So maybe we'll start there because then I think there's a lot of richness for our listeners too to think about understanding why storytelling and the co-creation of creating your personhood is so important as we face illness or even death and grief. But what are you, what's been the most interesting maybe learning that you've seen coming out of this interdisciplinary space? You know, I mean, first of all, my question is, are doctors and nurses and project coordinators like, what the heck? Why do we need to do this? Or is there like game on, I really want to, like, is there a hunger really? I guess this may be the first question to learn this, to learn these listening skills and to be better at showing up for people. I think if you had told me 10 years ago that one day I would be doing improv and theater games with doctors, I would have thought you were being very silly and joking with me. Um, and yet I also probably hopefully at the same time would have been like, well, of course, of course, yeah. of course. And to your question about the interest, I'll rewind us back to 2019. Myself and two physician colleagues of mine, Dr. Tanya Rohr and Dr. Isaac Chua, did purely an improv workshop at one of our national conferences for palliative care. And in our preparation, we sort of thought to ourselves, gosh, I hope people come. Like, I hope they... First, we were really bowled over that we were accepted at all for a presentation because we recognized what a different space this was that we were proposing. And, you know, in our prep, we were like, maybe, maybe 20 people will come, maybe 40 people will come. Wouldn't that be amazing if, if like 40 or so people came? And it was standing room only in the room. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I never got a formal count. I had prepared, we gave, we gave these sort of sheets of paper to people at the door and I had prepped 90 out of like total crazy Thinking dream. you were like, <laughs> yeah. Like this yeah. is like really shooting for the moon. And I gave all 90 of those out by the time, and people were still coming in. So not only was it standing room only, um, people were game, no pun intended, to really dive in. And the rich part of that was also our discussion afterwards where people were opening their hearts about remembering why they went into medicine, remembering the human space that exists between us and remembering that different modalities of learning and maybe being a little uncomfortable can allow us to learn in a new way and allow us to grow in a new way. And allow us to experience what our patients are experiencing all the exactly. time. Exactly, Lisa, that comes up so often. People are thinking, wow, this, you know, I, I felt so uncomfortable when this part of the game was turned around that I had to inhabit. And you know, I immediately thought of 10 patients, 10 mothers, 10 family members that I had asked very vulnerable questions to within 30 seconds of meeting them in a room. And wow, how must they feel? And that's just one of, of numerable similar types of reflections between people. They've been really profound spaces, and I'm continually humbled at how people are not only showing up, but digging in, giving us ideas and feedback, and really finding this space to be one that is opening hearts and minds at the same time, which is maybe a little bit different for educational spaces. Yeah. Well, so many threads there that I loved. One was that it, this was an you know, we think sometimes that we have to educate our way into things, but that you had found this playful endeavor that opened these practitioners and clinicians up to reconnect with their calling, with their purpose, with their heart, whatever you would, you know, however they might describe it for themselves. And also really at its core, you know, reconnect with their humanity. I think there's so much informal clinician training. Certainly, I can't speak to med school, but even as a trained clinical social worker, there's so much in some ways that 
there's so much pressure to be expert and have expertise that separates us from our own humanity, let alone our patients or clients or, you know, humanity. So that endeavor, it sounds like, really connected people back with their humanity. Yes. And I feel really called to uplift um, one of the tenets of, of improv and theater work, which is the idea that you are enough, you performer, you person in the space of somebody else, you're enough. You've done the studying, you've done the work, you've done the training. And the same holds true for social workers, for physicians, for nurses, for admin folks like we have done. There has been such extraordinary training that people have dug into for years and years and years. And what if we actually just say to you, what if the gift is you, you have it in you, you are enough. And how do we allow that to be present and to be then the, the space that you enter into with each new new patient and family. Yeah. And to show up then with your humanity. Yes. And with your own even not knowing everything and your own discomfort and your own vulnerability that might help that person feel safer to come forward in their own. You know, that reminder of your humanity and that calling there remind I just recently had the privilege of having a conversation with BJ Miller, mm, you know, palliative care physician. And he and I touched on that too, about sometimes these systems, again, not with malice or, you know, evil intention, pull providers away from that mm-hmm. because we're sort of tricked into, I mean, some because of just systems and time and logistics and the billing and healthcare, and that's a whole conversation for another day, mm-hmm. but some just in the false choice that to be expert is to disengage with your humanity. Yes. And it sounds like this use of narrative and storytelling and theater, especially when we think about it applied to the providers, said, we don't believe in that false divide. Yes. And I think it also invites that space that you're pulling out of. We are medical clinicians working in partnership with our patients and families. Uh, uh, Whatever the correct word might be, we're working in collaboration with, we're working in spaces with our patients and families and how one treatment course, I mean, this is uh, sort of the palliative care part of me coming forward that you know, by by really partnering with the person in front of us, the family in front of us, the, the the community in front of us, that then helps tailor our course of action forward. That helps tailor the space between us, whether it's pursuing another round of chemotherapy or not. That is based on no... That's just not textbook expertise. It has mm. to be situational and in collaboration and in acknowledgement of the particulars values and experiences and beliefs of the people with whom we collaborate. Exactly. Right? And ensuring those and that's, values are in met. some ways can take, if we can get out of our own way, I think it can take some pressure off the provider or clinician to have one singular answer for everyone instead to be more reflective and in conversation. But it takes vulnerability and bravery mm-hmm. in the face of that to do that mm-hmm. too. Yeah, absolutely. I want us to really dive deep into you helping us think about why story is so crucial, the lifting up of one's personhood, the sort of narrative tenets, which I'm happy to dive into too, which is really just this notion that we have experiences and they don't have meaning. And it's only in the storing and restoring of our experiences that we make meaning. And that's never more important than when we face catastrophic news experiences and injuries. But This notion that palliative care is storytelling and storytelling is palliative care makes me want to step back for those who don't know or didn't listen to the conversation with B.J. Miller or just don't know from their own. Can you set us a baseline of how would you describe palliative care besides that beautiful metaphor of it being a storytelling endeavor? Sure. So uh, to me, when I think of of palliative care, I think of an interprofessional uh, way of working. So that means 
collaboration between physicians, nurse practitioners, social workers, psychologists, and folks of many different trainings and backgrounds, chaplains, child life specialists, etc., coming together to work with families who are facing serious illness. Think of ourselves as a field, as an extra layer of support to people moving through those vulnerable, difficult times, uh, and our work can and should be different for each patient and family. The things that palliative care really does a beautiful job of specializing in are things like that even from symptom management. So if, if there's symptoms that could use additional collaboration around whether it's pain or nausea or sleeplessness or anxiety or uh, uh, emotional and existential distress, how do we think about that uh, alongside the course of care? Uh, and we also help with ongoing communication. The idea being that if we are able to lift up the values and the perspective and experience of the patient and family in front of us, and we ensure that the medical information they are receiving is complete and that uh, questions and understandings are answered, that we can then find a pathway forward for treatment that is most uh, in line with that individual patient and family schools of values. The snapshot version is that we are, you know, in a professional team that's an extra layer of support to families who are facing serious illness. Um, and that can be all along, all along that, that uh, path of serious illness. Right. I think, you know, I've had other guests remind us of this too, that this isn't, it gets so often conflated with hospice, which hospice will include palliative, but it does not have to be an end of life. And I think it's really back to the shift. I love it in its relationship to narrative and storytelling, because while traditional medicine, as it's been practiced in what in the Western kind of modern era, has us looking on solutions and fixing and that kind of zeroing in on a particular part of the body, palliative care zooms back out to the humanity, not just of the individual patient, but of the sort of organism of systems of their family and community, and really reconnects sometimes for the patients themselves who are genuinely desperate for the doctors to focus only on their one body part because I want it fixed, but maybe sometimes to the detriment when they've lost track of their values, how they, what they want to do with the time that they have in the world, kind of their belief systems, and the ways in which they might be unnecessarily suffering because we've only zeroed in and attended to, you know, the lung or the elbow or whatever's going on. Right. Yeah. And I think that's especially true in pediatrics, both the idea that uh, palliative care is, I mean, it's, it can be true for people of any age, but I find it a shining kind of light in pediatrics that palliative care can be of service to people for for many, many years, people living with chronic and complex medical conditions. And, um, you know, because a, a child is ever changing within their, within their system, within their family, within their community and their own identity. And how do we allow that to be just as important a space of conversation as, um, uh, as biopsy results or as, as uh, lung x-rays, which are also very important too. Yeah. Again, holding that both and or yes and, I think especially when we're thinking up about pediatric or really anybody sort of before the emerging adult era, because there are developmental and, um, you know, milestones and things that children may be missing or not missing and ways in which they're processing the information that we just have to take into account. Can you tell us a little bit about, just from your work or even that project, why we need to be thinking about lifting up one's personhood, whether we are maybe the family member, whether we might be the patient or the person experiencing some chronic illness or 
you know, catastrophic injury. Or, of course, if we're, I also have lots of practitioners and clinicians listening to the show, but what is it about lifting up one's personhood and why is that a central theme of interest to you? And, and what do we need to know about what that looks like? Lisa, I have to tell you, I keep seeing this image in my mind of when I worked in that volunteer organization in New York and that powerful space of not only having the child be present on stage as their written story was shared, but having that then borne witness to an audience of their community and really then seeing that a symbiotic relationship being a, a part of what is so special about that space. And I don't mean to to say that medicine is like theater, but I think that there is something in that is possible in the exchange of lifting up the story of a person as we consider how to how to treat them for an illness. And I think that I, you know, our, our medical system has become so fast, has become so connected to electronic medical records and, and different needs that we might forget the person that's within that. I think for all of us, for for the people who are not clinicians who are listening, you know, when we sit in an office awaiting results or or are holding someone's hand who is in a really vulnerable and scary space, I I hope that we all cross paths with a clinician who has acknowledged the feeling that exists in that in the room during those times that has borne witness to that and and how healing that can be and how much trust can then be built in those spaces with one another. So my language for it is is lifting up the personhood of our patients and, and thinking about the stories that they bring and the stories that we hold. But it also can be that simple space of, of really remembering when we ourselves have been in that seat uh, and needed to be held up and held by the person who's caring for us and how priceless that is. Yeah. And that comes back to remembering and sitting in the seat of our own humanity as we sit across from another human, which seems so simple and somehow is so complex, by the way, not just for the clinicians in the spaces. I think all the time I talk often about inviting grief supporters, how to show up. And I mean, we're not trained to hold, show up in places where people are experiencing physical or psychological or, or existential pain and recognizing the value of just being present in our humanity, even when we can't fix it. So it's not just those of us who are in the clinicians or you know providers or doctors who struggle with it. I think this is a larger kind of cultural deficit that we have. And it's part of why, I mean, frankly, it's just part of why I do this work is I'm hoping that we can all just start in our own little spheres practicing this. Yeah. Yes, I was going to add to that, like, especially when we can't fix it, like, especially, especially. when, which is not been, which is most of the time. Yes, I mean, especially now, like, I think we're, we're seeing that so up close as we move through a, a pandemic, I think, you know, because part of what this space has brought up for folks too is, well, how do I hold vulnerability? and maintain my ability to practice medicine? Can my heart sustain if I don't keep it really locked up tight? And yet, can I keep going if I am so locked up tight? You know, so what is that space of support? And what is that space of ensuring that we have the safety to talk about grief, to talk about loss, to talk about stress as clinicians as well? Because to me, that's that's how we start to get through. Well, I have the great privilege of joining you and some other folks to be talking about that in the near future. So I'm looking forward to that conversation in a different setting, in a different platform. But you introduced something that I want to move to when we're thinking about 
the power of these storytelling and just the fact that we are storytelling creatures and we are always in the process of restoring. That is not a word that rolls <laughs> off the tongue, but reinventing, rewriting the story of our lives. My listeners will know that my grief metaphor, how I describe grief is very always intimately entwined with this notion that we, our work of grief is really rewriting and living into the story of our lives. So when the other piece I say that to is the other piece that I think about when we lift up the personhood, it's not just reminding clinicians and doctors and supporters, but the patients themselves who fall prey to becoming the I am the disease, as opposed to I am a person with this disease and invoking and helping them invoke their own capacities, their own skills, their own resources, their own wisdom, because just I think any of us who've been navigating spaces, and that's true for grievers too, when we've kind of been stripped down to our core by some you know, diagnosis or some death or some loss, that feels to us viscerally, practically at the nervous system level, of that's who we are. But even the language of saying, I am, like we wouldn't say I am cancer, but in a way, the way we talk about our stories, those people who've experienced cancer, or even in my early days, just walking around the world, I am a widow, I am a widow, I am a widow. Yes, that's important. And so that's another way I wonder if in the storytelling work that you're doing directly with patients and their families is trying to move from that thin description, as they say in sort of narrative language, of this just one version of ourselves and kind of building a more robust version of people's stories that draw on their resiliencies, capacities, skills, values. Is that part of what you're doing in that project too? Yes, I feel like I have like a thousand buzzy things I want to share back, which is the best. But you're calling to find a metaphor that a patient once shared with me, a young adult patient who had cystic fibrosis. And um, she said, you know, sometimes people look at me and I can tell that when they look at me, they see on the cover of my book, cystic fibrosis. And what I wish I could tell them is that that is not the cover of my book. It is a chapter within my book. And at times, it's just a paragraph. At times, it's just a sentence. At times, I'm the person who loves this, who loves this, who loves this, who is a part of this community and this group. And I can see you when you first not meet. Like, I can see a person when they first walk in, if they see that as the cover of my book. And it makes me act a different way. It makes me want to respond in a different way. It also makes me sometimes shut down because I know that they're already, already sort of seeing seeing me as one as one thing. There's a thousand of metaphors like that that families have shared with us over the years, us being my team and all the people I've been able to partner with. But it's that. It's that for ourselves, I'll say for myself when I've moved through times of illness and of grief, that there will be times where for me, it might be the cover of my book. And, and chapter one, two, three, exactly. four, all the way to the end. Exactly. Yeah. And how do we also then do that in relationship to others when others might see it in a way that is dissonant to how we're holding it for ourselves? And if our if we are someone moving with serious illness and our clinician is only ever always seeing that as the cover of our book, how does that affect our relationship over time? How does that affect my self-identity over time? How does that affect my coping over time? And back to your question about like, are they even asking the right questions? Are they even invoking the patient's wishes or values mm -hmm. or skill sets because they're only seeing that cover of the book? Are they and curious what chapter two, three, four, five is? Are they curious where that is for me? How I or where you want the rest of your book to be written, exactly, by the way, exactly. you know, to keep that metaphor going. Exactly. Yeah. Where I see the future going, where what I dream about, what I hope for, what I worry about, and that's both connected to grief or connected to loss or informed by it. Yeah. 
When we come back, I begin by reading a piece Rachel wrote one year into the COVID-19 pandemic about what she was experiencing as she was vividly noticing the suffering of others and wondering how we're going to hold space and make meaning and build healing as we move forward. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Rachel Rush. Hey, I want to tell you something really special that just happened. I'm forever grateful for every single review and note and DM I've received over the past three seasons. Recently, I received another incredibly beautiful note from a listener. This time, they not only thanked me and told me about their special person, they also asked to give a gift, a financial contribution in support of the show in honor of their person. I was truly moved and grateful And in response, I decided to create a way for listeners to support the show in honor of their person and to share a story about their special person too, so that more of us can join on in carrying their memory forward. You can learn more about becoming a GSB podcast supporter by visiting my website today at lisakefover.com. Head over to the GSB podcast page and learn more. So when we think about this sort of guiding, I don't know what the word is, but the the ways in which stories guide our own sense of ourselves and our sense of the world, and the more aware we can become of the language we use, both with ourselves and with others, and how that shapes sort of the inevitability of conclusions we draw Mm -hmm. and outcomes. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about sort of zooming up now when we think about this space that we're inhabiting right now, in this time we're recording this, you know, in February 2022, in case this, you know, lives, this show lives on, you know, we're two years now, basically into the COVID-19 pandemic. Talk about stories. We all had a story about the way the world operates and our assumptions about safety and, you know, being able to gather, ease of travel, all these stories that we had. And then this pandemic hit and every stage thus far, we don't know when you're, if you're listening down the road, you'll tell us how naive or not we were at this point, has been a reminder, which is why I think so many of us are shook to the core that we don't only just tell stories and make meaning of the experiences that happened to us in the past. We are constantly banking on stories we've told ourselves about some future opportunities, experiences, and outcomes. And I think what this time has taught us is those stories are very precarious and we need to be attending to how do we live in these spaces where we, these ambiguous lost spaces that we're inhabiting in ways that we attend to. I want to read something that you, you, you wrote a piece that I thought was such a beautiful reflection one year into the pandemic around the time when vaccinations were coming and we (laughs) naively, I guess, thought we were kind of moving to some other space. You had experienced your own personal loss, a pregnancy loss. You were walking in the world, recognizing kind of just the shared humanity of kind of when I, you said, is the time ahead actually the time unprecedented, a forever shattering of any previous notions of what normal time is or was or ever should be again. And you found yourself sort of gazing into the eyes of people you passed. Who have you lost? What have you lost? Your favorite person, your sense of safety, your community, your future, and you, and you, and you. 
And that really resonated for me, which is, I think we, we used the language so often of unprecedented times over and over and over again, especially in the early, and we were still using it, but about this time. And the question that you sort of pose at the end of that piece, which I think is still the question at hand for all of us, clinicians, individuals, mothers, sisters, fathers, whoever we are, is how are we walking into a completely shifted, forever shifted, unprecedented times? And how are we going to hold space and make meaning and build healing as we move into that space? Yes, I thank you for your kind reflection. And um, I opened that piece with something that talking about how as things shifted in March of 2020, most notably, I was so aware that in every meeting I was, every meeting I was in, that it was this blank time, this unprecedented time. Ever-changing. Yes. Yeah. This this difficult time, this complicated time, this complex time. And it felt like, uh, I almost sometimes felt like, is anybody else seeing this? Like we're, we're saying this something time, clearly we're trying to grapple with or wrap our arms around or make sense around this profound shift that we're all feeling within us. And and also we tried to do that story thing where we made it a time. You know, we tried to already limit it in its scope, which is, of course, our human nature, but yes. is the arrogance of humanity right. to think we that we... We were trying we, to yeah. wrap ourselves around, probably to help make ourselves feel safe, to make which ourselves... Which is... Yes. Yeah. Adaptive. I mean, I use the word arrogance, but I'm going <laughs> to rewind that. I don't really think it's arrogant. I do think it's adaptive. It's like we can't completely exist in a world where nothing makes sense. We have to be constantly negotiating and being adaptive in the restoring so that we can have some sense of known. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so you started that reflection that way. And I, I appreciate that you lifted that piece up because I think that the reason I was called to write that piece was, you know, my pregnancy last happened. I was early in my second trimester uh, and it was by far one of the most emotionally and physically painful experiences of my life. And I had the great fortune of having community around me, support around me, access to health care, access to compassionate health care. And it was remarkably painful. So I can only imagine for people who don't have that same access uh, and privilege what that experience is. But all to say that, um, you know, the, the healing from that loss physically was surprisingly quick was uh, for such a big loss. I remember feeling like, wow, within 48 hours, my body feels okay. You know, my body feels like I can go for a walk or I could go to the grocery store and, and get some groceries. And as I did so, I was so keenly aware that no one around me would have any guess that just two days before I was in a hospital room in the process going of through the most profound loss of your life yeah no one would know and i think this is something i have known in myself and in my heart throughout my life ever since realizing that no one would know that my grandmother had experienced the loss of a child if you were to see her walking down the street that we are all carrying with us profound losses and profound experiences that we do not know when we look at one another and how has that been even more heightened and deepened and widened during this unprecedented time, this complicated time, when that person is walking their dog on the opposite side of the street of me, were they in a hospital room two days ago experiencing some sort of loss of their own? Are they walking because they are processing some sort of loss yet to come or some sort of loss of identity or self? 
And I just think this time, this this time, my hope is that it can allow us to have some. I mean, there's also the space of this time unearthing even more necessarily and profoundly extraordinary inequities within our healthcare system, the extraordinary continued systemic and historic racism that exists within our world and within our medical culture. Um, And how do we carry that forward? And how do we understand that we are irrevocably changed and that the time is, is ongoing and continued? Yes. Thank you for sharing that and that imagery. And I think additionally then is I keep coming back to this thread of how we come back to our shared humanity with one another is reconnecting, um, insisting for ourselves and others that we reconnect over and over again with the stories of each other's lives, holding space and bearing witness and then bearing witness to those who are bearing witness. Because you're right, though, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives, as I like to open the show with my very uplifting message, as I open the show each time. I think now we're much more cognizant of that. And yet, what do we do with that information, right? We need to then make different choices about how we show up, about how we react or don't react, how we don't assume the cover of everybody else's book right from the start. You ended that piece with something that I thought was beautiful because you were talking about the fact that you had this good fortune to return to a place with at, in your workplace anyways, with people, of course, who were more intimately skilled with grief because of the nature of your work, but really that this is the calling that we all have in the world. You said, if only the world's reentry into life after COVID-19 could have the support of a group of people exquisitely familiar with grief as I have had the gift of having, a knowledge that grief is not linear, that sorrow takes many forms, and that time and compassion and gentleness can create the ability to build toward a new reality ahead. What a beautiful wish for all of us as we walk into this space. And that's really at its core, the mission of this show, of the work that I do, which is to invite us to all have those, take those lived experiences we have of our own grief. If those of us who have been lucky enough to have people to have offered us that gentleness and that compassion, and then pass that along, pay that forward to somebody else in our lives. Yeah. Yes. I, in hearing you read that back, it's always so incredible to hear things from other people's voices. Cause I noticed the word build and, uh, I believe, I know that was chosen intentionally because I think that there is also a dismantling that is happening, needs to happen in many realms, uh, a dismantling of our, understandings of grief support up until this point, our understandings of each other's lived experience. I think this time has created a call for us to really build and rebuild, build and rebuild. Yeah. And and like break down, build and rebuild. Well, because really in all the ways in which we've been touching on, not just the COVID-19 pandemic, but the sort of rising up and the making more visible to more of the world, the systemic inequities, racism, just different systems that have had inequitable poor outcomes for people. All of us, whatever we're talking about from the COVID-19 impacts that have happened to all of those other impacts, we have had a ground shifting underneath us. The foundation is crumbling. And though that can feel scary, part of what this invitation is always, and I think about this at the individual level when we face loss, but then we can zoom this out to sort of our collective level, 
in whatever smaller or larger system you're a part of, that is an invitation then to rebuild and to build with intentionality, to build with the new information that the stories of our lives are unfolding for us so that we might hold space and bear witness in ways that connect us and lift us up, yeah, in ways that are going forward, yeah. Yes, and to lead with curiosity, not to sound too Ted Lasso-y, though that's <laughs> for, I mean, for those who have watched Ted Lasso. You can sound Ted Lasso-y in my book. That's, I don't think there's too much for that. Yeah. Um, but to, because I think what, what I also found so healing, what I also found so profound during that time was that the building was also in my being guided by others. I had people who had walked a similar path before me, who knew when to leave food at my door, knew when to call me for certain things, knew when to talk me through things that no one else would know to talk me through. I had a physician who held my hand and said, it is such a privilege to care for you. And in that tender space to have a physician look me in the eye and say that made me feel then guided to assure that we all have that privilege, that we all have that mm-hmm. space. And we all seen. have that capacity to do that for someone in our life. I think that's the thing when we feel overwhelmed in the face of kind of the ground shifting underneath us. To me, what I always come back to is, and I think this is a, which could be, a, I feel there's got to be a part two to this conversation at least. But to me, when I think about one of the therapeutic values in my own grief experience since the loss of my husband has been about like, how do I take what I experienced or learned and even to find some agency, even just show up for one minute or for one moment in a meaningful way for somebody else and how, what a gift that is, I hope to this other person, but also a gift to me too. Rachel, what an incredible time for us to be having this conversation. What a gift your story is, your work is. I'm so honored to be walking into some other spaces with you to continue this conversation about this power of narrative and storytelling and holding spaces across kind of populations, especially when we're thinking kind of in medical systems, both patients and families, but also fellow providers. So such an honor. Thank you so much for joining me today on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch podcast. What a treat. Of course, such an honor to talk to you, Lisa. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with my guest, Rachel Rush. If you've listened to the show or followed my work, you know that my deep roots and narrative approaches informs how I see grief and the world. That's why I so appreciate the way she transformed her experience as an actor, her passion for improv and storytelling into a deeply profound and thoughtful approach to palliative care. In fact, I'm thrilled to share that we'll be joining together on stage later this month at the National Social Work and Palliative Care General Assembly. I want to thank Gile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show and the team at Studio Pod for producing it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with my guest, Rachel Rush. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time... I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.